This is Listen to the Editors, a series of interviews with journal editors to unveil the trends in research on operations and supply chain management. I'm your host, Yuri Gavronsky. This month, we're posting in our podcast a workshop promoted by the Journal of Supply Chain Management, Journal of Purchasing and Supply Management, International Journal of Operations and Production Management, and the Journal of Business Logistics. The editors-in-chief for these four journals convened online on the August 20th to promote a workshop for reviewers, and we find very interesting their insights on ethics on publication, how do you interact with the editors, and what is expected from the reviewers. I hope our listeners enjoy this episode. The editors that were presenting and discussing were Barbara Flynn and David Cantor for the Journal of Supply Chain Management, Wendy Tate and Louis Knight for the Journal of Purchasing and Supply Management, Robert Dicklesson and Constantin Blom for the IGOPM, Beth Dave Schremet, the incoming editor for the Journal of Business Logistics. We also posted in our show notes some conversations that ensued in the chat for the Zoom session where the workshop took place. Without further ado, let me share with you the audio from the workshop. Uh, let's start with introductions. So, uh, very nice to meet you. I'm Barb Flynn. I'm one of the um, co-editors-in-chief of Journal of Supply Chain Management. Um, next to me is, um, well, at least on my screen, Yuri Gavronsky, and he's going to be uh, doing an audio recording of this to post on the Academy of Management website as a podcast. Um, we're also recording the, the full video version, and we'll have that on the JSCM website, and we'll have links to it from various other places as well. But let's go through and um, just have a quick introduction by each of the editors who's here, and, and then we'll start. So, Wendy, why don't you um, kick us off? Okay. Hi, I'm Wendy Tate. I'm the co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Purchasing and Supply Management. And as Barb mentioned, she and I have, have done this presentation together a number of times. So hopefully we can stay in sync today, even, if, even though we're virtually away from each other. Okay, how about Louise? <laughs> I'm, I'm also co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Purchasing Supply Manager and Management. Okay, uh, Rob. Hi, my name is Rob Clausen. Uh, I am just the newest co-editor-in-chief at the International Journal of Operations Production Management, or IJOPM is a little easier to say, uh, and certainly enjoying that that new opportunity. Yeah, and welcome, Rob, and congratulations. Okay, Dave. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Dave Cantor. I'm a professor of supply chain management at um, Iowa State University. I'm just starting... Uh, my first uh, year as uh, co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Supply Chain Management. So excited that uh, everyone has joined in today to help uh, provide uh, high-quality reviews. Thank you. And we'll have Constantine Blom joining us in a minute. Um, and Beth, are you there? I'm here. Okay, good. So why don't you introduce yourself to... All right. Yes. Hi, everyone. My name is Beth Davis Schrammick. I am a professor of supply chain management at Auburn University, and um, I am the incoming co-editor-in-chief for the Journal of Business Logistics. Uh, my other co-editor, Glenn Ritchie, is also 
at Auburn. Um, he he just started as department head, so he is going to um, try to pop in if he can this morning. Uh, but um, uh, Barb, thank you, Wendy, thank you for inviting us. Um, I, I think this is a great this is a great forum. So thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Welcome everybody, and thank you so much to all of the editors for joining us. And I think this is great. So let me go ahead. What we'd like to talk about is uh, crafting an effective review. And we use that term because there's a real art, I think, to um, being a, a good reviewer. So it's, it's more art than science. And that's why it's important to talk about. So first of all, why serve as a reviewer? That's how I feel sometimes when I review manuscripts. I, I feel like I always have a couple manuscripts in my briefcase, at least back in the days when I actually traveled. So, you know, I, I review manuscripts a lot on airplanes. I review them in bed. I review them out on the porch. Um, you know, manuscripts, they kind of go with us everywhere. Why review manuscripts? First of all, as, as editors, uh, we can't run our journals without, without reviewers. Um, this is a volunteer business. Nobody gets paid, or at least I could ask my, my fellow editors there, how many of you get paid? <laughs> we're, we're all volunteers. Uh, and, and so volunteers are really important to to running journals, um, and without without reviewers, we couldn't exist. Um, you know, we what what makes our journals high quality is that every manuscript that we publish has been reviewed by at least two people, sometimes three or even four people, um, and and that's important. You know, we all want to be publishing in peer reviewed journals, and we can't do that without peer reviewers. So tremendous benefits for journals. Second, it's, it's a responsibility of scholarly citizenship. Uh, you know, this is an important way of contributing to the scholarly community. And this always makes me think of, of what uh, we like to call the Alita Roth rule. I heard Alita Roth uh, say this at a conference one time. And I thought it was a really good comment. Uh, she said, if I send a manuscript to a journal and it gets reviewed by three people, then I feel like I owe that journal three reviews. And that's kind of a good way to look at it. I mean, there are three people or two or maybe four, throwing an associate editor, maybe a department editor. There's maybe five or six people uh, that touch your manuscript when you submit it to a journal. You need to return the favor, either to that journal or maybe just some other journals, because if we're not all doing this, we're, we're going to run out of people to do reviews. So it, it's an important responsibility of being a good um, scholar and contributing to our academic community. I think there's tremendous benefits for reviewers. I still do a lot of reviews, and I would bet most of my fellow journal editors still do a lot of reviews. We review for each other's journals. Um, you know, we all we all know each other. We all review for each other's journals. That's an important thing for you to remember as an author as well. If you get a manuscript rejected at one journal, there's a non-zero probability that you're going to get the same reviewer at a different journal. So please make sure that you pay attention to the comments that they, they wrote. First of all, this is a good way to, for you to learn how to see your work as a reviewer would. It's like putting on a different hat. You put on your reviewer hat and read your manuscript critically. Again, that's kind of an art to be able to do that. It, it, it's hard for me. When, I, when I'm working on a manuscript and I've been over it, it feels like a hundred times it always looks wonderful to me, but but to try to see my my manuscript through somebody else's eyes uh, and, and criticize it the way a reviewer would is really important to me in, in doing a better job of writing the manuscript. Um, 
it's a way of keeping abreast of the latest research. Um, you know, for me, it's been a long time since I was in a PhD program. I was trying to figure that out last night. I think 36 years since I graduated. So um, nobody is forcing me to read the latest research, although I try to do it in my own, my own field when I'm, I'm writing manuscripts. But this is a really interesting way for me to keep up on what's going on in other areas, maybe areas that aren't my, my primary um, research. It's also helpful is the service component of your annual review. We all get evaluated, at least in the U.S., on teaching, research, and service. This is important. Um, I wrote a, a promotion letter yesterday for somebody going up for full professor. Um, he had tremendous service to his university and to his department, and his external service was all uh, things that I would put under the heading of of service to journals. So he reviewed for many journals. He was an AE for three or four journals. He's a department editor at JOM. He's a um, senior editor at, at POMS. Um, that was pretty much his service to the external community. He wasn't somebody who you would see who's very visible organizing conferences and that sort of thing. These are all important contributions, but we all contribute in different ways. And Focusing on contributions to journals is really important. And, and I wrote really, even though he's, I don't think he's ever done a, a review for, for my journal, I wrote really strong things about his service to the profession. So that's an important um, aspect as well. Also, learn what constitutes a bad paper and what constitutes a good paper. When you work as a reviewer, you're probably going to see more bad papers than you do good papers. Uh, and that's important. So you can see what uh, a poorly done paper is so that you can avoid making those mistakes in your own work. And every now and then you're lucky enough to read one where you're just like, wow, that is an incredible paper. And that's a good model for you as well. So especially if you're younger to your career, that's really important. And finally, it's a stepping stone to moving up. If you would like to uh, join the editorial review board of a journal, be an associate editor and so forth, at least at our journal, that's where we go for people. We look at who's done good reviews, we promote them to review board, then we look at our best review board members, they become our AEs. Um, in some journals, there's other levels, um, you know, area editor, senior editor, departmental editor, and eventually how you become an editor-in-chief. It all, it all starts out with, with being a good reviewer. So, um, you know, it's part of your career path as well. Being a, a reviewer is critically important for the journal. It's your responsibility as a, a, a citizen of, of the scholarly community, and there's tremendous benefits to you for being a reviewer as well. It's also important, one final one, um, if you're looking for letter writers when you go up for tenure. I just gave you my um, example of the letter that I wrote yesterday for somebody being promoted to full. If you can get a journal editor who can write and say, wow, you know, so-and-so did such a great job, really wrote strong reviews, made a tremendous contribution to our journal, that's really important when you're when you're going up for tenure. So this is how you get to know senior people in your field that can, you know, return the favor for you and, and would look forward to being able to return the favor. All right, so let me switch over to Wendy now, and she's going to talk about ethical responsibilities and what to do right and what to not do. I'm going to first talk about ethical responsibilities of submitting authors. And I will go more in depth on the last point about uh, plagiarism because it it's definitely a, a hot topic at the moment. So, so first and foremost, 
we want to protect reviewers' time, and we don't want to um, have reviewers doing your work. So my suggestion always is that ask somebody to do a friendly review of your paper or have it uh, professionally copy edited before you submit it. Because one of the, one of the biggest reasons that, we, that papers get rejected is that it, they're just a mess. I mean, there are typographical errors and formatting errors and, and things like that. We don't want to get that in, in front of our reviewers. So um, present, make sure you present original ideas and arguments. You know, don't, don't, definitely don't present somebody else's ideas as your own, but try to make a, a good argument about, you know, why, why is this important and why should we even take the time and, and lots of time to actually uh, get this, this paper near to publication because there are lots and lots of hours involved in a published manuscript. Make sure you give credit to those that actually did help you with the manuscript, with the uh, the contributions. Um, make sure you follow your human subjects guidelines. And, you know, I have a feeling in the future we're going to actually be asked to show our, our approval, our human subjects approvals when we are, um, when we have our, our manuscript, manuscripts submitted. Um, always maintain confidentiality. Uh, this is another, actually, a, a, a big issue. And I know I, I myself have had manuscripts where where we we're writing about something, and we we were the publishers that actually uh, collected the data, and we have a report out there somewhere. And you have to make sure that we we follow this double blind review process because um, that's what. That, that's how we do things in our field. So uh, make sure to preserve anonymity. Try to try to keep um, you know try to ensure that it is double blind. That you're not actually somebody can't tell who you are. So you have to be very careful about about that. And then, as mentioned, the plagiarism, uh, self plagiarism, is a big issue right at the moment. Plagiarism is one of the top reasons why uh, manuscripts, it's probably the second reason why, in my case, manuscripts get rejected, desk rejected. Okay, every journal runs a plagiarism check on your manuscript when it is submitted. And uh, those plagiarism checks, uh, unfortunately, will show a very high numbers sometimes. So, so authors... Um, to, will duplicate other already published material, and that shows up as a, a very bad thing. So you have to you have to ensure that as you're as you're thinking about submission, I would actually suggest everybody run their their manuscripts through a plagiarism checker at your own university to make sure that it is not going to to send red flags to the uh, publishers, and we can't. We, we have to publish original material. So you'll get a note that says, well, I'm really sorry, but the, um, the plagiarism check said this is at you know, 30 or 40 or 50%. And, um, and you, can't, uh, you can't actually uh, have, we can't, we can't publish that material. It can't move forward in our process. So it's the author's responsibility to ensure that those numbers are not at a, a red flag level and 
And we, we really, I mean, these are some of the emails that I honestly, I, I, I personally dislike so much where they say, that's impossible. It's not duplication of material or it's, you know, it's, it's this particular thing, this manuscript that I submitted to a conference. And, you know, so, so that shouldn't count. And in reality, that's still published and public material. So it is considered plagiarism. So you have to, you have to be careful. And we get, it's really hard to say, you know, we, we found that, you know, we found that, so it's five or more words in a row. And, and it's hard sometimes to change those uh, words around, but you have to do it. And I've seen, you know, I've seen particularly in the methodology where, where people literally just take full paragraphs from other, their other manuscripts. So, so be very careful. And I, I, I know this is really, I know this is really difficult and I know it's very upsetting to people because I, I do, I get lots and lots of emails questioning how I could, how dare, how could I dare say that they are plagiarizing, but it's not something that, that I'm, doing as a matter of fact. So I'm just looking at what's in our system and checking to make sure that that um, it is original work. So so yeah, so I try not to take the emails too personally, but it does upset me. So um, other things, data falsification, uh, incorrect use and interpretation of statistics. These are these are things when you write a paper, so this is from the author's perspective. Um, don't do these when you're reviewing, you know, don't, don't take those ideas. Don't steal ideas. It's, it's still very important that we keep our, our double, um, our double blind review in, in place. And we uh, ensure that we're not, we're not borrowing material and then, and then publishing it. So uh, Eric von Reich wrote a, an, a manuscript. It's been uh, two years, I believe, and it's called Deja Lu. And this is talking about data reuse. So um, there's there are things that you need to look at and be aware of. And you sometimes you know sometimes you overuse some of these some of these databases. So you have to be very careful on that. That paper is in uh, Journal of Purchasing and Supply Management. So as a reviewer, you probably won't see, uh, you know, in fact, I know you won't see things that have uh, high duplication of material, um, but you need to be aware of some of the things that are, that, that are not ethical or maybe they're not, maybe they're not uh, completely wrong. But as you're reading these manuscripts, think about, you know, other work that you've seen and have you been seeing this um, too much, or have you seen it uh, uh, too in other manuscripts? Or are things misrepresented or not well referenced? You know, are are uh, is it a current problem? That's something that I'm always looking for. I see manuscripts a lot of times where where we have literature that there's no current literature, and so you think, you know, is this really something that we need to um, we need to think about? So plagiarism. I sorry, I get very. Uh, <laughs> I get very excited talking about it. So, so uh, as Barb mentioned earlier, accept reviewing as responsibility of scholarly citizenship. Make sure that you are engaged. It can only 
help you. And I know I, even as a way back when I actually started, um, I was always reviewing and I was started reviewing for conferences. And then, you know, once I, once I got reviewing and started with the conferences, you know, then I would, I would move into all these different, to these different journals and start reviewing for them. And uh, I still, to this day, do many, many reviews, probably too many reviews but uh, I take it as my responsibility. And honestly, if you want to get your manuscripts published in a journal, you need to be willing to review for that journal. It's, it's just fair. You know, somebody calculated how much time it takes for uh, of people, of reviewers, uh, as editors and, and et cetera, to get your manuscript published. And, you know, you kind of owe that time back. That's my perspective anyway. So. Um, Think through conflicts of interest. Uh, I was just doing a review the other day for uh, Journal of Operations Management, and in the when I went to submit my review, I had to. It was a required field. Do do I have any conflicts of interest related to this manuscript and to my review? So so that most likely means that we'll be seeing that question in all of our journals. But, you know, think through that and, and, you know, what really does constitute a conflict of interest? So do you know, do you know the people that, that wrote the manuscript? And a question that we often get is, do I need to, what should I do if I know who wrote the paper? Because you've taken out the blind review aspect. So um, my suggestion is if you if, let the editor no, and the editor let the editor make the decision as to whether or not they think you'll be okay reviewing the paper. Um, I have actually never been turned down, even though I I know the authors, but I'll tell the editors I you know I know who wrote this paper, and usually I get back a comment like, "Well, yeah, usually the, the those are the ones that write the best reviews because you're you might be a little more." Uh, interested in in what will happen to the manuscript so uh, just contact the editor every situation I, I think is um, is different so uh, let us know that you're qualified or not qualified to to review if you don't feel like this is a something that you know then then again send a message and just say you know I'm I'm sorry or, or I can't accept this review because I'm not really skilled in this area or, you know, whatever the case might be. So um, look at, keep an open mind when you see manuscripts. This is, this is something difficult sometimes for reviewers. And there are different approaches that, that you need to think about. You know, sometimes manuscripts don't, are not in that sort of cookie cutter, you know, framework. And maybe there's a reason for that. So, so think through that. I always say, you know, don't be mean, just be nice, right? Treat others like you treat others like you want to be treated. Um, be clear in your communication. If you're writing a review, don't, don't just use this. And sometimes I find myself doing this actually just start, okay, I'm going to just write down exactly everything that I'm thinking. And then, you know, hope that the authors and the AE can figure out what, what exactly I mean, because that's not a good way to review either. So there are, um, be nice, be kind, you know, think about, is this the kind of review that, that you want to get back? Um, 
I've seen, uh, you know, me personally, I've seen reviews where I, I just am like, how could the editors actually let this review come out? Because they, I mean, they use words. I'm sorry, don't put the word stupid in a review. It makes me crazy when I see this, you know. Obviously, there, if somebody has written a manuscript, they believe that it's making some sort of contribution. And I'm sure that 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 they they believe that there's there is something good about that manuscript. So so treat others as you want to be treated. Oh yeah. So I I said plagiarism was one of the top reasons why uh, why we have to give desk rejects. The real top reason why we give de desk rejects is the lack of fit, and um, I, it's just amazing to me still that we will get uh, for the uh, purchasing journal that I would get um, I would get a manuscript that doesn't mention the word purchasing even once in in the journal it's like that, that doesn't make sense so as both the reviewer and the author know the journal know the types of articles that these journals published and we have representation from um, four journals here today which is fantastic so you know as we get to, to the Q&A and as you're um, as you're asking questions in the chat, you know, that's something that you may want to ask about, you know, what, what goes on at your journal, you know, what, uh, what kind of guidelines are there for both authors and reviewers, look at them and understand that and what the expectation is. Um, other things, this on here, we have this private comments to the editor, and I'm going to continue to say, if you have questions, you know, please send us the question. If you think you have a, a conflict of interest, or if you think you've seen this data too many times before or something, write, write notes in the, in the uh, editor comments. We pay particular attention to those from our, our editors and from our AEs. So know the journal, both from a reviewer standpoint and an author standpoint, and it can only help you as you start to position your own manuscripts um, for those journals. We're going to switch back, and I'm going to talk about the topic of developmental reviewing, although this is a great one for Wendy to talk about, too, because she has such a, a great phrase that she uses, <laughs> which is, we would like our reviewers to be a gardener, not a gatekeeper. And I think that's a really good um, metaphor. You know, we're not a gatekeeper. Our goal is not to try to keep journals out. I think every editor keep papers out. Um, we, we want to accept papers. Uh, you know, we, we love publishing papers. I don't think there's a journal in the world that has a, uh, a goal of not publishing manuscripts, especially good manuscripts. Um, but often a manuscript that has been submitted is still in kind of a raw form. So how can you be a gardener? How can you nurture that manuscript. And, and as authors, you've probably had that experience where, you know, you submit something that you think is really great and then end up getting some very helpful reviews that may eventually totally reshape the direction of the manuscript. And I think that's a good example of being a gardener, not a gatekeeper. So the first thing to remember here is no matter how bad a manuscript is, somebody thought it was good. Uh, people don't submit what they think are, are bad manuscripts or stupid manuscripts to use when you start, you know. Uh, everybody thinks this is this is their best work, and and again, when you review a lot of manuscripts, um, sometimes this is hard to remember because the majority of the manuscripts that we see are, are really not very good. Um, but somebody thought that was good, um, and we're not talking about lowering your standards. We're not saying be easy as a reviewer. 
keep your standards high or find out what the standards are for the journal that you're reviewing for. So use appropriate standards, but be considerate of the author's dignity. I mean, there's no, no reason to write a snotty review. Um, you can say what you need to say without being mean about it. You know, as Wendy said, don't be mean. Um, be constructive, mentoring. Um, you know, a, a good way of thinking about this is that this could be the first manuscript. This could be a very young author who has never submitted a manuscript to any journal before in his or her life. What would you do to help that person? How can you be a mentor? Um, and again, you're, you're probably going to recommend rejecting um, the majority of the manuscripts that you see. So I'm not talking about lowering your standards, but how can you reject a manuscript in a, uh, a supportive, mentoring, constructive kind of way? Um, we all get emails sometimes from authors whose manuscripts have been rejected. And I, I, it's always a really good day for me when we get um, an email where somebody says, okay, I see your point. I understand why you rejected it. And thanks so much for the helpful comments. I mean, this is one of the best reviews I've ever gotten. And now I know how I can take these comments, use them to rework the paper, send it to a different journal. That's what we hope the outcome is going to be, that, that you know, we, we certainly have to reject papers and, and we do it frequently, but we want to be constructive about it and, and be nice. And one way to do that is to give concrete recommendations for improvement. Um, as an author, um, the best reviews that I've gotten uh, have been, you know, often very critical, but then at the bottom, they'll say, well, here's a way forward. Here's what I think you can do to make this manuscript work. I love getting a review like that as an author. Um, and, and I try to write reviews that way as a reviewer. Um, here's a way to get out of it. And sometimes it's just as simple as rearranging the sections or positioning the paper differently. It isn't necessarily a, um, a big thing, but what are your concrete recommendations for improvement? So even if you are recommending rejection, the goal isn't just to dump on the author, but what can you do to help them? You know, they're probably going to turn around, send it someplace else. They may get you again as a reviewer. You don't want to see the same paper again. So what can you do to help them um, make that paper better? Um, suggestions for alternative outlets, I think, are fine. And, you, you know, the editors may differ on this. So this might be a good question to ask. But um, you know, I always appreciate it if somebody says, you know, this really wasn't the right journal to send this to, but here's, here's a list of several journals that might be interested in this sort of thing. Again, we're trying to be helpful. We're trying to help the entire community here. Um, always try to begin and end with a positive comment. Um, sometimes that's really hard, but it's, it's, again, it's just an important practice to get into. Um, I'll tell you another story that I, I think Wendy has probably heard about a hundred times before, but um, at, at a previous university, we had a dean that nobody liked, and our fantasy was that um, he would get hired someplace else, so he wouldn't be our dean every now and then, or again, <laughs> anymore. Sorry, I'm, I'm watching these people entering at the same time and getting distracted. He was our dean constantly, unfortunately. Um, but our, our fantasy was always that we would be contacted by one of our friends at another university to say, what do you think of your dean? He, he's interested in the job at our university what could we say that was nice about him? And we'd laugh about this over lunch. It's like, well, there's gotta be something nice we can say about this guy. And we came up with two things. One was he had great sweaters, you know, really had an interesting collection of sweaters. And the other was his wife was the nicest person in the world. So you know, what can you say that's nice, even about a paper that, that you think is terrible? So begin and end with a positive comment. You know, your positive comment at the end could just be, good luck repositioning this paper and I hope you do well with another journal. 
Um, but try to come up with something positive to say at the beginning and something positive to say at the end. So, you know, kind of the summary comment here is you should have high standards, but write the paper as though the author is a good friend. And this is where my other story comes in. So when I was a young reviewer, um, I was reviewing a paper that was, I thought it was really awful. Um, very poorly written, not well organized, just really terrible. And I went through with a fine tooth comb and, you know, basically criticized almost every word the author said. And I did this for about three or four pages and, you know, very, very detailed comments. And I got tired after doing that. And so this is actually in my review. I said, I could go on, but why bother? And sent the review off that way. And apparently it got sent to the, uh, the author. So now flash forward three or four years, uh, sitting around at a DSI conference with, with some of my very good friends from when I was a PhD student, sitting around having beers, telling funny stories about reviews that we've gotten. And my office mate, my former office mate, who was one of my very best friends, said, you won't believe this review that I got one time. Very critical. And then it said, I could go on, but why bother? And I didn't have the guts to admit to that. I just said, oh, wow, that's really terrible. But I often think about this, that you never know who the author is. It could be your best friend. And I would have written that review so differently if I had known who that author was. And I, I try to remind myself of that if I, I get too harsh. Um, how would you write this as though the author is a good friend? Okay, so how should you review a manuscript? Uh, and actually, I'll jump ahead to one of the questions that, that I saw that, that flew by. It said, how much time should we spend on reviewing a manuscript? And I think that's a, a really good question. Um, and, and I think something that maybe all the editors can can talk about later, but how long how long it takes really depends on the manuscript and it depends on your skill as a reviewer. Um, some manuscripts are gonna take a lot more time, some will take less. Um, you don't wanna put an inordinate amount of time into a manuscript. I mean, you certainly shouldn't be taking a week to, to review a manuscript. Now you might read it quickly and then come back and read it a few days later. You know, it may be in bits and pieces. Um, uh, usually for me, um, probably two or three hours. I mean, I need to read it thoroughly and then write a good review. But, but as a young reviewer, it may take you a lot longer. And so that's important to think about when you are doing reviewing. Going back to what we said at the beginning, it's important to be a, a reviewer. It's very important. But you're not, gonna, you're not going to get tenure for being a good reviewer. Uh, and you don't want to spend your first five or six years just reviewing and not writing your own articles. Your, your priority is on writing your own articles. So you need to be somewhat selective about which journals you review for. Where are you going to learn the most? Which journals might you be targeting with your own work? So, so you've got to think about your own career as well. So in reviewing a manuscript, avoid the tendency to jump to, to a quick conclusion and then look for supporting evidence. Um, I tend to do this and uh, at least I'm aware of it. You know, I, I try to um, counteract that. I'm a former elementary school teacher and I'm kind of a grammar Nazi uh, and I can't help it. My mother was an English teacher. It's just how I was brought up. And um, a, a paper that is badly written, it's very hard for me to come up with positive things to say about it, no matter how good the content is. Now, at least I'm aware of it. Um, but if I read the first paragraph and it's poorly written, I've kind of formed an opinion on the entire paper. So I try really hard to compensate for that. Um, so something to think about as an author as well. It's really important that your paper is, is well written. So avoid the tendency to jump to a quick conclusion and then look for evidence to support that conclusion. Um, 
start with micro judgments and then move to macro. So you go through and read the paper the first time and, you know, just make little detailed comments as you go through. I, I, I'm old school, so I have to print it out and I make I write comments on the manuscript. And then I go back and think about the big picture. What's kind of the sum of these little comments? How do they work together? <clears throat> so one way to do this is to, just to put pluses and minuses in the margin. I tend to just write things right on the manuscript. Um, maybe circle issues that are bigger, but you know everybody kind of develops their own style. But but again, personally, I think it really helps to actually have a physical copy of the manuscript in front of me and and be able to write all over it. Then you give it a second reading and think about the big picture, and then move to looking at at several questions together. So what what is the sum of all these little comments? What are the four or maybe five major themes in my review? And they kind of emerge. So you, you would cluster then your smaller suggestions under these main ideas. Um, so here's some questions to think about as, it, as you review a manuscript. And by the way, I'll give you a reference for a lot of this material at the end of the presentation. I don't want to claim any of this is original, but uh, a lot of this comes from a really good uh, book chapter, chapter um, that I read on how to be a good reviewer. Um, so first of all, what is the purpose of the research project? Um, did the authors make that clear? Sometimes they don't. Um, I'm working on something with some co-authors now. It's a, a proposal um, for a project where they've actually already collected some data and analyzed it, uh, but they're still proposing and trying to get some money for it. And I keep saying, what's the purpose here? You know, that I don't understand why they're analyzing the data the way they are because I don't understand what their research question is. What is the purpose? And and you know that needs to be stated very quickly. Um, when I teach uh, PhD students in Brazil, we always do an exercise where um, I have the class read the introduction of four or five papers, and they can bring in their own papers um, and find the research question. And it's amazing how many manuscripts don't have a research question. And sometimes it's not written as a question. It's like the purpose of this paper is. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's close enough. Um, but I find my, my students are always trying to help the authors. And they say, well, here's what I think it is. It's like, I don't care what you think it is. The authors need to tell us what the purpose of this is. If they don't know what the point is, then there, there's a bigger problem. So do they clearly state what the purpose is? What's the target audience? You know, is this being written for academics? Is it being written for managers? Um, you know, one of the big reasons for desk rejecting a manuscript is it's not written for our target audience. And I, I imagine the other uh, editors would say the same thing. We get an awful lot of papers that are written for a different audience. They might be great manuscripts, but they're not right for our audience. So just to give you an example from um, Journal of Supply Chain Management, we get a lot of modeling papers. Uh, you know, our, our audience is not modelers. They're all empirical researchers. We don't publish modeling papers. Um, so what's the target audience and is that aligned with the journal? Um, Okay, then do the authors describe the contribution of, of the manuscript? Uh, what's the contribution? If they don't know, that's a problem. They, they, need, they need a clear idea of where they're going, why they're doing the research. So did they tell you what the contribution was? Do you understand it? Does it make sense? And is it consistent with the goal of the journal that you're reviewing for? So then do the purpose, the audience, and the contribution match? That seems obvious, but it's not true of a, of a lot of manuscripts. So start off by thinking about the purpose, the target audience, the contribution. Do they match each other? Are they aligned? And do they match what the, the purpose of the journal is, the goal of the journal? Okay. And then what's the research paradigm? Is it appropriate for this journal? Again, 
just gave you an example of modeling papers. We don't publish modeling papers. A lot of the other journals that are represented here do. Um, you know, is the research paradigm appropriate for the journal or not? Um, it, it, at least for journal supply chain management, and I imagine for all the other journals here, you're probably not going to see a lot of papers where the research paradigm is inappropriate because we're going to weed those out. They're going to get desk rejected before the manuscript ever even gets into the review process. So generally, um, that question is less important as a reviewer because it's already been through a preliminary screen. Um, okay, how about the lit review? Does the literature establish a need for this project? And does it provide relevant um, information about efforts by other scholars? Generally, the second is more true, I would say, in manuscripts that I'm familiar with um, or that, that I see. Uh, usually, they're pretty well positioned in the work that others have done. But sometimes others don't use the literature to establish a compelling reason why we should do this. We see a lot of this um, drop-in theory approach where uh, people throw in a, a, a paragraph typically on resource-based view that just comes out of the blue and says, yeah, this is our theoretical foundation. And it's just kind of a standalone paragraph. You know, you really need to use the literature to create a compelling need for your manuscript. So if they don't do that, it isn't necessarily a reason to reject the paper, but it's something to help in this process of nurturing, to work with the authors to say, you really need to use the, the literature better to convince us why this is an important manuscript. All right, is the methodology clear and appropriate? Um, I would say a good rule of thumb for authors is to always err on the side of providing too much information about methodology. Don't ever shortchange the methodology. These are some of the biggest questions we get from reviewers. They'll say, you know, I just don't understand what this paper is about. Uh, they haven't given me all the information that we need. Sometimes we'll send a paper back to the authors and say, you've got to write a clearer method section before we can even review this. Um, at JSCM, we almost never use reject and resubmit, but I just did that on a, a manuscript that had almost no method section. Um, they've got to have it. Uh, they were using a method that they had used in another paper and said we can't um, refer the reviewers to the other paper because we compromise our anonymity. And I wrote back and said, yeah, that's right, but you still need to tell us what your method is. I don't care you know, if you use the same method in another paper. And by the way, you can't just cut and paste it from the other paper because that's going to go into the, you know, it's going to be caught by the plagiarism chapter. So you've, a, a paper has to stand on its own. Um, you can't expect the reviewer to be going and looking up other papers and you can't expect the readers to be going and looking up other papers. Um, you know, readers often read a paper quickly. And if a paper doesn't stand on its own and clearly say what it has to say, that's a problem. So methodology is really important. And, and also when you think about it, um, you know, we all come from very different theoretical perspectives. We have different interests as far as content, but what we have in common is method. We all understand method. So don't shortchange the method. That may be the only part of the paper that the reviewer is really comfortable with is your method. So explain it in detail so that reviewers and then readers can understand it. Are the methods used in a rigorous and trustworthy way? Uh, you know, Wendy talked about some of the um, uh, non-rigorous and untrustworthy ways that, that um, methods can be used. If you have a, a question about, again, ethical considerations, check with the editor. Um, do the details of the data collection and analysis make sense? Are they doing something that seems wrong um, or backwards? Uh, again, at least point it out to them, give, give the authors a chance to explain it. Would it be helpful to change aspects of the overall research design? This is where it gets a little touchy as a, as a reviewer. We can do that up to a point, 
but you're not going to be able to say, well, instead of a survey, you really need to do case research here. Like that's that's asking too much. You know, if you think the survey is poorly done, then, then the paper probably needs to be rejected. But what often happens here, we often see changing aspects of the overall design in experimental papers where uh, the uh, authors have done one experiment or maybe two, and the reviewers might say, okay, you really need to do a third experiment, and here's what you should look at. Sometimes those are really helpful comments by reviewers. So I would say this last point uh, probably applies to experimental papers more than others. That being said, going back to what Wendy said earlier, don't expect reviewers to do your work for you. Uh, one of the problems we're seeing with experimental papers now is that some of them will send just kind of a rough experiment, hoping that the reviewers will recommend improvements to it. Uh, we, don't, we don't want that. It needs to be a finished paper. Hopefully they can help make it even better, but not design the paper for you. Okay, is, is it presented effectively? This gets into the writing style, um, the organization of the sections. Um, again, there is absolutely nothing wrong with, with um, hiring uh, a proofreader to make sure it's written in uh, proper English. Um, there's also nothing wrong with adding a co-author who can help you present the material better. If you work with somebody who is really good at that, gosh, by all means, use them. Um, would a different order of presentation improve understanding? Again, that's an easy comment to make as a reviewer. And sometimes it's obvious as a reviewer, if you would just switch these paragraphs around, it would be so much more compelling, you know, that kind of comment. Uh, is information in figures, tables, and appendices necessary and effective? Um, some pa papers have way too many figures and tables. Some don't have enough. Um, you know, every figure or table needs to serve an important purpose. Uh, if there are some that are unimportant, say that. You might also say, gosh, you know, this, this information that you spent five pages talking about, you could just summarize that in a table. So sometimes adding tables and figures is helpful. Um, appendices, um, uh, definitely include an appendix if you're doing a survey. You should include your survey. If you're doing an experiment, you should have an appendix that has the actual language that was used if it's a vignette experiment in the experiment. Um, we're seeing a lot more online appendices, and I think that's a great addition now that we're able to do that. Um, sometimes if you're doing very detailed um, robustness analysis, for example, I would put all that in an online appendix. Uh, it's there for people who want to see it. It's not going to overwhelm people that really don't want to see it. So think about online appendices as well. But again, as a, as a reviewer, these are good comments that, that you can make. Uh, potential concerns about plagiarism and other ethical issues. I'm not even going to go into that one any, anymore, but um, I, I think we have a, a lot of questions that we'll talk about in the Q&A related to this as well. Okay, so putting it all together, you think about making kind of two summary evaluations at the end. First of all, does this manuscript make an interesting and significant contribution to the literature? And this is the reason why we do this. If, if it doesn't make a contribution to the literature, then it probably shouldn't be published. If it's somebody just doing the same old thing again and again and again. Um, give you an example. I used to be editor of Quality Management Journal. And um, I would get a lot of manuscripts that I sort of uh, described as what I did on my summer vacation. Uh, it would be somebody who went home to whatever country they came from uh, for the summer and did a research project to justify being there. And they would do a paper that would say, does quality management apply in X, you know, name a country. It's like, well, of course it does. It applies everywhere. You know, that's just kind of silly. That doesn't make a contribution to the literature. So now on the other hand, if you looked at the country that 
you came from and said, you know, my country is, is very unique in terms of national culture. It has some characteristics that are very different um, than the country that I'm living in now. Um, uh, how does quality management apply when these cultural characteristics are dominant? Okay, that's an interesting contribution, but it's got to make a contribution to the literature. So that's question number one. The second one is how much work would be required for this paper to make an interesting and significant contribution? So is it reasonable, in other words, to ask for a revision? And I think everybody has their own rule of thumb on that. Uh, and, and this is a good question for the other editors to talk about for a few minutes. But my personal rule of thumb, um, so this would be a fatal flaw. To me, a fatal flaw would be something that you can't address without collecting new data. So if it's rewriting the paper, um, if it's citing a different theory base, those are all things you can handle. Writing the method better, changing the discussion. A, a good author is able to do all those things. And I think those are appropriate for a revision. But to turn around and say, no, you've got to completely collect new data, that's asking them to do too much. So for me, that's a, a criterion for uh, uh, being a fatal flaw and saying it's too much work, that needs to be a whole new manuscript. So these are the kinds of things that you look about at the end. Um, of a review. So I'm going to turn this back to Wendy. Okay, thanks, Barb. That was great. So one thing that's super important about, about a review and performing a review, please be, be organized. You have to avoid, and I mentioned this before, avoid this stream of consciousness approach. And, and I, I, like I said, I look at myself and I know this is the easiest way for me to write a review because I'll go through and make comments on the first read and then I get to the end and I start thinking about it and I go back and do another, another read of the manuscript. And you just, it, it's, it's hard to, to go, here's how I want to structure my, my review. So pr prioritize, and I'm going to continue to talk about this a little bit um, uh, prioritize the things that are important, those things like Barb was talking about, you know, what things are making this so you either feel like it can move ahead or it can't move ahead. Is there a fatal flaw or is there is there not a fatal flaw? So, so read through, um, you know, substantiate what you're saying you know, are they missing some key literature, which a lot of a lot of manuscripts are missing key literature, and, and uh, you don't use those to actually build um, the arguments. Communicate effectively. I'll say one more time: um, be nice, be considerate as you're as you are writing your review. And you know, another thing that people don't realize. Reviewers are all different, and so what we have to do, and and at JPSM we we the AEs actually do this for us. So they take the you know all these reviewers' comments, and if there's two reviewers or three reviewers, they take all the reviewers' comments and try to try to summarize those into a report that then will come back to the editor, and then the editor you know at least we have a way to compare and contrast and. And I, I know most likely a, a question will come up is what do we do when we have very different reviews? And it would, my world would be so happy if I, uh, if I could go and say, okay, well, everybody agrees exactly, they feel exactly the same about the disposition of this manuscript, but that's a very rare occurrence. I, I it's, you know, it's, there's lots of differences of opinion. So, 
Um, and I do, I believe there are some people that, that are gatekeepers and not gardeners. So, so no matter what manuscript they're reading, their, their idea is not to make that better to, but to try not to get that manuscript published. So we, we try to, you know, we try to wade through those. So what you say and, and do as a reviewer can have serious consequences for the authors um, the, the reputation of the journal and, and of our profession. So, so, you, you know, you could be impacting somebody's tenure, I mean, promotion. So there's, you have to take this job very seriously. And, and again, go back to, it's sort of an obligation as an academic, you know, when I submit a paper, and I, it goes out for review. I actually believe that my paper is wonderful. It's the best thing that, that has ever been submitted to that, to that particular journal. So when I get comments back from reviewers, I, I just can't believe it. I can't believe they didn't love my work, you know? So, so people think they've done a a really great thing and a good job and are sometimes unwilling to, um, to make suggestions for change and uh, you know it's it's funny as i'm reading the comments as they're going through i think it was beth that that put in a comment about you know you can say you can say reject in a number of different ways so so be be kind and be considerate so um it it's it is difficult so what you want to do is you want to take my manuscript or any author's manuscript and say nice good things about it because I think it's wonderful but you think it'll make a much better contribution if they do something if they make these changes so um, if you if it's organized and prepared and you're making these comments and and you know you're you're being kind I think the authors will respond uh, positively and if there's conflict between reviewers or or between you know the AE is generally the one that that first looks to that conflict and says you know you need to think about what reviewers one is saying and I know that's contradictory to reviewer two but I think if you go the way of reviewer one you'll be you'll be in better shape so so you know we prepare your report so that the AE can then take it and and make a decision and summarize and then the editors can go yes i agree or don't agree with what you're saying and and i mean there are times where we say you know i i think we need to consider this other this other reviewer's point so barb barb always talks about this so this is probably my first time to talk about the the thinking hats so so this is just a, a, an interesting way to think about you know what it is you need to tell the um the author so as you're as you're reviewing this paper you know put on a different hat you know when you say and you can you can actually go ahead barb so, so you want to wear these different hats, and each of the hats has has sort of a a different um, meaning or a way of thinking. So, so thinking about the template for a reviewer's report, and this is you know what what does this look like? So, the first thing to do is to you know kind of think through if you if we were back at the hat the hat slide, this is like this. Feelings hat, you know, the red one. So briefly summarize the project. I understand. I understand what you're trying to do. Here's what you're doing. Here's how you're doing it. I get this. So, so every review that I personally write 
always starts out with, I understand what you're trying to do. Okay. And here's what you're trying to do. So then, you know, put on your positive thinking hat and go in and identify the strengths of the project and the manuscript. So this kind of, this is saying, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you're looking at this context, or I appreciate the fact of the methodology, but, but think about, you know, what, what is the strength of, of this manuscript? Don't, don't start off all negative, you know, don't say, I think, I think that we should, uh, we should reject this because whatever, it's so bad. I can't read through the rest of it. Um, so, so then look to present three or four, you know, primary concerns about the manuscript. What are those three or four concerns? Is it about conceptual development? Is it about, uh, and many, many are, it's about, we, we didn't get through the introduction and even tell us why we need to read this research. So, so go through and what are your primary concerns that, that you think need to be addressed? Okay. Make suggestions for improvement. Think, show you, you want to try to get them to believe that they can actually improve the manuscript. And remember, there is no one that that submits a manuscript that thinks that they have done a terrible job. Well, maybe there are people, but but in general, like I said, if I submit something, I think it is a work of art, and I can't believe that somebody's going to come back and, and tell me otherwise. So so make suggestions for improvement. Note the smaller problems. Um, Barb was talking earlier about how she she prints out the reports and has little pluses and circles and that kind of stuff. So so you know there are some things there there are manuscripts that. I've seen reviews come back and point out every single typographical error in the manuscript. You know, it just makes the review so long and just say, you know, needs a good copy edit. And, and, you know, here are some examples or something like that. So, so note smaller problems. Um, I see a lot of times with the smaller problems, the idea that they're, you know, they're missing some, uh, some key citations or references. Reviewers can identify those and uh, authors greatly appreciate it. So I started off really happy with my, my, uh, my review. I said positive things about it. I told them the strengths and everything. And guess what? I'm going to end with something positive. At, at, yeah, I'm going to end up and I'm going to say, you know, I really appreciated this. Um, this, even though I'm, I'm going to rec recommend, you know, whatever you're going to recommend, however you want to end, just make sure that it's positive because then the reviewers, uh, then the reviewers will, or sorry, then the authors will go, Oh shoot. You know, I, I, and I, I, uh, it's not as horrible as I was thinking. So, so we, um, go through these reviewer reports and you need to do that as you go through and, and, um, and try to make revisions, but you need to address all the reviewers' points. So as a reviewer, think about that because you're going to get some comment back um, from the authors about what, what you said to them as well. So um, just a basic template for a review, and now we're going to open it up for Q&A, and thank you to all the other editors for answering these questions. I haven't, I, I, it was very difficult, I was getting distracted. So a lot of questions have already um, 
been answered and the editors have done a good job, but we would like to open it up and you can either raise your virtual hand or again, put the question in the chat box. Um, one thing I, I think that I'd like, I'd actually like the um, other editors to sort of address and maybe you have done this already, but um, this idea of what is plagiarism and what is self-plagiarism? Because there was a, a big discussion um, in the chat box talking about, you know, why why can't I why can't I use my own work? And so so I'd like to hear, particularly from from other journals, you know, maybe uh, David, since you're one of the newest ones, <laughs> you can you can assess that idea with you know what what is self-plagiarism. Let me just jump in quickly on that before we go to them to say that we don't expect 0% plagiarism on any manuscript. It, that's impossible. Um, you know, what the plagiarism detectors look for is phrases that appear in other manuscripts. Um, and, and for example, uh, if you have five words in a row that appear in another manuscript, that's going to show up. And we all say, in conclusion, we found that. I mean, we all say that. Or the purpose of this research is, it's six words. So it's inevitable. There, there is going to be some plagiarism. So 0% is not the ideal score. Um, and I'll just leave it at that because I think different editors may have different perspectives on what kind of number they're looking for. But if you're doing your own plagiarism check as you're preparing your own manuscript, don't expect to get a zero. You know, it just needs to be a, a reasonable number. So, so we've got Louise, Rob, Constantine, Dave, Beth, um, and I guess Wendy and me too. So we'll just open this up. And I guess you would turn that over to Dave. So why don't we start? Because he's the new guy. So I just wanted to, you know, put him on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> Not a problem. Um, yeah, no, my, my thought on this is that, I mean, as editors, as reviewers, we're, we're looking for an original contribution to the literature. And so when you're, when you're writing an article, you want to tell your story. And so if you're copying and pasting from, other work, it's hard to achieve that originality threshold. Um, and as a, as a new editor at JSCM, I'm looking at new submissions every day, and I'm uh, really shocked at uh, how many submissions I have seen so far where when I look at the Authenticate software program that reports on plagiarism, I see scores easily over 20%, sometimes 30 or 40%. And um, so I think it's really easy these days for any author to to get a license to a um, plagiarism checking software program, run your manuscript through it before you submit it to a journal, and just check to see whether or not your, your manuscript has exceeded a, a reasonable threshold, if you will, in terms of plagiarism. So um, I guess that's my, my one input for the morning is not try to, try to check yourself to see whether or not you have inadvertently plagiarized somebody else's work. And when you're writing your own manuscript, Try not to copy and paste from the PDFs that you're downloading. Read, a, read a, an article, set it aside, and try to articulate in your own words what are some of the central thoughts from that, from that published paper that you want to incorporate into your own story and tell your own story so that you're minimizing any potential or risk for plagiarism. Okay. Some of the other, other editors, is there a magic number that you look for on the uh, plagiarism detective? I would draw a strong distinction between um, poor paraphrasing, which is what we often see our students doing because they haven't taken their notes carefully and they haven't, um, they're not attributing, writing it in their own words, um, and, and would treat that very differently to if I think someone is 
either trying to recycle their own work inappropriately and not making a good contribution or trying to pass off someone else's intellectual property as theirs. Um, and the latter two are far more important. If I see a bad case of um, poor paraphrasing, especially if it's a non-native English speaker, I might well go back to them and say, look, you just need to sort this out. Um, because you can see that the, the, the ideas um, for the core of what their contribution is, is theirs, but they need to, to, to sort out the paraphrasing. Other times, it's a much bigger concern, and then it's an absolute no-no, send it back and say why, and, that's, you know, and watch for anything else coming in from them in future. I think they also, you, you saw an example of the report that we get. One of the things we're looking for is if there's an entire paragraph that's highlighted, that's a problem. If it's five or six words, it's not a problem. So, you know, we, we actually look at that report. We don't just look at a number. Uh, Beth, it looks like you just unmuted. So would you like to jump in? <laughs> yeah. So I was just going to say that I, I largely um, I agree. I, th I think what we're looking for in, in what I have seen as a problem, um, even as a reviewer in AE, is um, it's the self plagiarism. It's, okay, I, I pretty much got the same model. I'm going to add a new construct or a new dependent variables. And um, the rest of it is going to be largely the same. It's going to come from the same data set. Uh, maybe I change the theory around a little bit, but it's that little tiny incremental contribution that when you look at it on the whole, you go, yeah, this is too much. Like you, you've published this already. Um, so I, I think that for me is what I'm, I, what I am most concerned with. Um, and, and, and somebody put in the comments that this is something that reviewers can really help editors with. Um, we may not be familiar with, you know, every literature base or all of the work that's out there. So, um, you know, I, I think it's important for reviewers to say, Hey, you know, I, you know, I, I've, I've, um, this seems a lot like a paper I've seen before, and, and uh, I think it's imp really important to to alert us of that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, if I can add uh, one thing on top of uh, a couple of points to reinforce. I think sometimes it's just, and this word will sound really negative. It's not meant to be that way, but sometimes just laziness on the part of authors when it comes to self plagiarism. Uh, they've written an article or a conference publication, proceeding, etc., and then it's simple cut and paste or something close to that when it comes to the literature review or the methods, and it really then comes down to also either updating the literature is obviously one way to avoid some self-plagiarism there, uh, and also think about maybe um, recasting the methodology in a slightly clearer or better way. All these are ways to avoid that self-plagiarism trap that I think we sometimes inadvertently fall into. It's not as though somebody sets out to do that. It's, it's often something that can happen. I just mentioned in the chat, so interestingly enough, people discuss this a lot. And uh, also authors, when we even provide the chance to revise a manuscript and indicate that um, there is quite some plagiarism in the manuscript, people almost freak out. You know? because uh, they almost would be considered that we call out a crime or uh, whatever. I think it's very important for the authors then also to react appropriately. But uh, to a certain extent, it's relatively clear if you see the plagiarism in front of you, and it's just too similar, and it's uh, uh, together with the reviewers, we have to handle that better. And I think also technology now provides us with a tool to address it, 
But as always, if you have a new tool, you have to make ethical sense of it and use it in the right way. So we should just not follow like a slave, is it 25% or 30%? So we have to really consider what is the issue at hand. But then as an author, if the editors come to the conclusion, there's probably something to consider and not something to fight over, really. Bill, there's people raising their hands and <laughs> so I was going to give them an opportunity to talk. And I know Yuri. So did you have a question? Anyway, so I have two questions. One is, of course, we don't expect any reviewer to share the, the paper he's review, he or she is reviewing with anyone. But in the shake of mentoring students or something like that, what would be the ethical problems in sharing with your PhD students or uh, with um, uh, providing advice uh, for your PhD students on reviewers they are making? So, so in other words, is it okay to take a paper that you're reviewing, give it to your PhD students and ask them to do a, a practice review on it, right? Or in, in another way, if you have a PhD student that asks you, can, I, can you check if I'm doing a, it right? Okay, so let's, let's open this up to the editors. Anybody want to jump in on that? Let, let me offer an opinion. Um, so I've, I've seen a couple of different scenarios. So I know some faculty uh, will ask their PhD student, a student, single student, uh, who's serving as an RA for that individual to do a first pass review of the paper. And then it's sort of this mentor-mentee relationship. And in fact, I can recall doing that as a PhD student where I would do a first pass review. Um, and so I think that's a very valuable experience for the PhD student to learn how to do reviews before they're actually, um, you know, kind of post-grad status. However, I, I personally have uh, an enormous amount of hesitation with sharing a paper more broadly than that kind of one-on-one -on -one relationship um, because the PhD student who's working as an RA certainly needs to understand that this is confidential, that this is meant to be uh, part of their overall developmental process. Whereas when you share it with a broad group of PhD students uh, as part of a course or just part of overall uh, learning, I do think you're running the risk of moving beyond what's understood as part of the review process. This is still the author's work. Uh, PhD students are clearly looking for new ideas as well, and so may inadvertently borrow uh, some of those things from the paper. No ill intention as part of that necessarily, but I just think it, it creates a lot of uh, potential open-ended questions that, that are very difficult ethically to answer. Other reviewer, other author, editors may have may have different opinions, of course, on this. Let me just jump in with another question that just came in, and that's what happens when I'm reviewing a paper. I'm asked to review a paper, and it's uh, a new method that I'm not familiar with, or maybe even an existing method that I don't feel particularly strong in. Um, although the content area is something I'm very familiar with, so should I turn that review down or? Uh, go ahead and do it. And, and Beth, it looks like you've got an opinion. So tell us a good answer then. So um, I do this often as a reviewer, actually. So um, I, I I generally don't get papers because of my methods prowess. It's usually related to literature or theory. So I will um, I will qualify. Um, in the review, and I'm assuming that the editor knows this, right? I'm assuming that the editor is sending me this paper because um, 
it, it is in, in an area that I understand or, you know, or, or um, and that they know that my, uh, that, that I'm not going to be able to contribute as much on the method side. Um, so what I will do in even the review is say, I am commenting largely on the theoretical framing and positioning. I'm, I'm, you know, this is not a method that I uh, have a lot of expertise in. So I, I'm very upfront about that for, to the authors and also um, to, so, so the editors will know that as well. But, but I think that's, I, I, I think that's fine. And I, I don't think you should uh, ever turn down a paper because of, um, a, a, you know, you don't have the methods expertise. Unless they, unless the the editor directly asks you to be um, for for that expertise. Good. Any of the other editors want to jump in on that one? So I, I would like to to add to that question. Then, what would be the role of the editor when the reviewer asks inappropriate procedures, for example, asking for control variables in a, an experiment? I think I think that's where you you try to nicely say. In, in doing your revision, please focus on the comments of reviewers two and three. Uh, if one was asking for something inappropriate, you know, you don't want to come right out and say you can ignore reviewer one, but hopefully the authors can read between the lines. I don't know what the other editors would say. Because that, that happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sometimes you get reviewers who want to remake a paper the way they would write it. And it's not supposed to be the way they would write it. It's the way the authors would write it. And, and if it's someone who's very familiar with the area, they might say, well, there's these control variables that are always used, and, and maybe they're not appropriate. So uh, yeah. anyway, you can kind of steer the authors away from, from those. Yeah, I agree. Um, Ted's had his hand raised for a, quite a while, so I'm going to let him ask a, a question. And we have somebody else, too, raising their hand. So, Thank you, Wendy. Uh, Ted Ferris, University of North Texas. Uh, I guess I'm the curmudgeon because I've been doing this for many, many years ran into a situation where I had one of my, I guess I can't call him a doctoral student because he's now a full professor at a university, but he contacted me in the first year that he was in his academic job. And he said, I have a problem on a review. And I said, okay. He said, I read through this and I didn't get it. I said, okay, what'd you do? He said, I read through it a second time. And I was kind of wondering if I learned anything at the University of North Texas. And I said, okay, then what? He said, I read it through a third time and I prayed for divine intervention. And I said, okay. And, and he said, there is no God. And he said, <laughs> I said, what do you do next? He said, I'm calling you. Okay. And what I realized, first of all, I said, tell me about the paper. And we were both reviewers. So I said, stop. We're both reviewing the same paper, but it's not a good paper. Okay. You need to conduct your review, send it in, and then we can talk because I've already sent in my review. And I realized at that point, and just kind of words of wisdom to the, to the crowd, as doctoral students, we read a lot of papers, but they've all been vetted. They've all gone through the whole uh, check and balance system. And now suddenly when you're asked to be a reviewer, you're going to end up with papers that are the other, what, 80, 90% that never should make it to publication. And so keep that in mind that these papers that you're asked to review aren't necessarily going to be the same as what you had as a doctoral student. Okay, just, just as a comment. And that's it. I'll go away. <laughs> Thank you, Ted. Um, Frederick, 
Um, it's about uh, feedback to the reviewers, actually, uh, because I would like to know whether the editors give uh, feedback to the reviewers, for example, when they do a very bad review, like proactively. And uh, secondly, is it also okay when, uh, for example, I reviewed something to ask uh, the editor in this case whether they can provide me with feedback on how I did my review and how maybe I can improve my review in future? Well, I can uh, quickly say from iJob on site. So in case the review is really bad, then we will rescind the review. And then in the system, the reviewer would also get the uh, feedback that the review is rescinded. We do this, of course, only in cases that are really clear. Uh, in case reviewers do a lousy job, we also operate on a um, uh, blacklist, unfortunately, where we would put people on if they're not doing a good review. Um, in a repeated manner, so probably not the first time unless it's a really flagrant case. Uh, otherwise, we would um, yeah, adjust our review base after some time. Uh, you can always ask. Um, we receive probably one question a year where reviewers ask how they did. Uh, we rate, of course, uh, the quality um, of the review and also the, the timeliness. Um, but we would also be happy to provide further feedback um, either from the AEs or from the editors, uh, but it very rarely happens. Yeah. Louise? I'd say the same as Constantine. We don't get asked very much, and we would be glad to help if we were asked. Okay. We want lots of good reviewers, so we're happy to help. Okay. Let me do a quick poll of the Thanks. editors, just show of hands. Do, does your journal automatically send the, the comments of the other reviewers to all the reviewers so that they can kind of evaluate their own? That's the default, yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's the default, and that's helpful as well. So you should see all the other reviewers' comments and the AE's comments, and that mm -hmm. that's very useful to see if it looks like your your comments were appropriate, and and see how other people reacted to the same paper. Okay, thanks. So I'd, I'd say we've got about four or five minutes left, but Wendy, I can't see the hands. So are there other people with their hands are up? If, if you don't mind, if I could raise one, one other issue that, that I see sometimes is challenging for reviewers to handle. Um, and that's when you, some journals send the revision of a paper. So let's say you rejected the paper as a reviewer, uh, but of course there are one or two others, ultimately an A or an editor weighs in as well. And so the paper may very well get a revise and resubmit despite your recommendation to reject it. And, and I think as a reviewer, one of the challenges is what do you now do with this conflict that at least internally has developed where you didn't think the paper was good enough to go further, uh, but apparently other people did. And how does exactly, how do you then respond to their second revision uh, or the first revision of that original manuscript? And here's where I, I personally, as an, as an editor, department editor, so on, really see the value in a reviewer second evaluation of their own first opinion. Uh, how do they process the reviews that the other reviewers uh, had? What's the response from the authors? And are you simply going to stick a stake in the ground and say, no, I'm absolutely never going to change from reject? Or do you, in a, in a, I think, a fair, equitable way, process the comments of the others plus the response of the authors to your original comments? And, and that process either can be quite painful Uh, as an editor, or alternatively can go fairly smoothly if, in fact, the reviewers do start to see some convergence, 
it doesn't mean every paper is, is accepted on a revision, but uh, but the reasons need to start to converge for either rejecting at that point or alternatively um, converge towards acceptance. Thanks, Rob. And, and Louise had a point she wanted to make. Uh, looks like a, a very good one before we wind this up. Okay. Yeah. Thanks very much for that comment, Rob. I, I agree fully. And um, the thing I wanted to mention briefly is coercive citation, which is getting some attention on the ethics um, front at the moment. And that is when you spot that um, the authors have missed your work, um, do you just put it in and um, say nothing about it to the um, to the editors? Um, we would like you to flag to the editors that that you are um, they have missed your work. What we have been getting, um, and, and not just JPSM, but it's a general thing across journals, is concerns from authors who feel that they are being forced to cite. Um, other people's work, which is inappropriate just to to raise their citation at the reviewer's citation levels. Um, But also, I've noticed we get some false positives. So we have reviewers, uh, sorry, authors saying, well, I was made to do this. And when you actually track back, they think they know who the reviewers are. They assume that, in fact, it was, um, they were citing, they were suggesting their own work should be included. And and that's not true. And I've had one author um, have a review say um, that um, uh, they've misread the work of this person and it was the author's own work. So, of course, they (laughs) haven't misread it, you know. So we get false positives for coercive citation. um, And therefore, as a handling editor or a reviewer, if you think that you need, um, the author should be adding your own work, make sure the editors are aware of that recommendation and can manage it proactively. Good. We, we probably need to um, wind this up. I know a lot of you have other commitments uh, coming up at 1030, but thank you so much to all the editors for being here. This was great. Uh, we really appreciate it. And, and to everybody else, just to, you know, remember, um, be a gardener, not, not a gatekeeper. <laughs> and uh, we, we look forward to uh, working with you as reviewers uh, and, and in other respects as well. So thank you everybody uh, for being here. And, and hopefully this was, was time well spent for you. So Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Listen to the Editors is an initiative of the Operations and Supply Chain Management Division of the Academy of Management. We post our interviews monthly in our division website. You can discuss any of the topics of this episode using our interactive tool, connect.aom.org. Using the discussion section of our site, you can also post suggestions for questions journal editors you'd like to hear from and request for clarifications. You can also subscribe to our podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or with the Podcast Addict app on Android. See you next month.